All right, it's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lewis, here with my partner, Sky David. Uh, we're glad to be with you today. All right, we got a great show for you. We're going to talk about the week in politics. And we're going to talk about. This is our maiden voyage here, Sky. We've been talking about doing this podcast for three years now, and today was the day we we gave it a try, but we've had technical difficulties all day. It felt like we weren't going to get off the ground. Yeah, and by we, Brian means he, and that he has been promising that we were going to do a podcast since 2018, so here we are. Well, you know, I got a planner this year, and I wrote this down in my planner. For January. It's March. Right. But <laughs> putting it in the planner every day, I keep moving it over, and finally, we got a little bit of equipment. I'm not going to say it's the nicest equipment, uh, but we're working on that. Uh, hopefully, we get on air this week and uh, we get this thing published to the web and hopefully someone listens to it besides my mother and your mother. Yeah, at least my dad too. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, shout out to Illinois. Speaking of Illinois, so, you know, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to get to Illinois in a minute. So this is a podcast about being a lobbyist at the North Carolina General Assembly where you and I work. Right. So we are in session right now. The General Assembly came into session January 13th. Can you kind of explain to folks out there who have normal jobs what our day is like day in and day out as lobbyists when they're in session? Yeah, so in session, we are there from morning till the last committee ends. And um, I live near the General Assembly, so I just walk over there in the morning. Um, about 8, I like to be there. Um, if there are 8.30 committees, you kind of sit through committees, meet with legislators, um, talk to other lobbyists, really like you have your pulse, your hand on the pulse, um, to see what's happening and just being present in the building all day, every day. Um, is one of the greatest ways to have a benefit and hear things that might be happening that would affect your clients on a day-to-day basis. We take phone calls from clients um, and sometimes meet with them in the building as well. So even this is COVID, pre-COVID, and then post-COVID, we we happen to be in the building. There are some lobbyists that are choosing not to be in the building, and that's fine. That's great. You want to stay safe. We encourage everyone to do so, but we kind of do our work in person, and we mask up, of course. Yes. So a regular day, it starts Monday night is when they come into session and then they stay till Thursday. We typically have three meals together. We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, you don't eat breakfast, I eat breakfast. And during a course of a day, we observe kind of some funny things at the General Assembly. So we're doing our work, we're going to committees, we hear some interesting bills, we hear debate. But sometimes you and I kind of will start laughing as we text to each other. And then we kind of thought, like, maybe we should do a podcast and talk about some of the funny things we see in the General Assembly. Yeah, I mean, if you think, if you're a normal person and you think about interacting with 170 people on a day-to-day basis and staff, so, I don't know, 300 plus people, um, there 
is bound to be some situation that will make you laugh and you have to laugh because sometimes you take a loss and it really stinks um so if you can't laugh at yourself and other people like this is not the job for you and you will not enjoy politics at all so those 170 people being the 120 elected to the north carolina house the 50 elected to the senate so some interesting bills kind of went through session this week we saw a COVID bill that you and I were tracking. We had a couple things in that COVID bill. That bill gets introduced Monday. It is now uh, Friday when we're, when we're taping this podcast. Can you explain how that is so unusual for a bill to move that fast in the General Assembly? Yeah, the sense of urgency is not something that generally legislators have. Um, at either the state or the federal level, if you follow policy, you know that legislators like to do things at the last second. Um, so generally you don't see something introduced that just moves, flies right through unless it is very time sensitive. And with COVID needs, it has been time sensitive for a while. Um, that federal bill passed at the end of December and so the funding from the federal government came to North Carolina and they had to decide how to spend that money. From what we understand, both the House and the Senate budget appropriators had been in conference working on that bill for like the last three or four weeks. Um, and there are some difficulties with exactly how they could or could not spend the money. So that held it up a little bit, but they felt pressure to get that out, get that through and get relief to North Carolinians. So there were a couple things we were tracking. One of the things, uh, as we sat through committee, we saw this interesting parliamentary procedure that, um, you know, I always find intriguing. And that is, uh, representative Jason Sane was going to amend the bill and uh he you know he's always great on the floor and in committees very funny um he went to amend the bill and the amendment did something it kind of deregulated the way we we work we we look at nursing homes and the way we regulate them during covid and representative gail adcock had uh she had a grievance with this amendment and it was one of the most um you know, it was an unusual kind of debate, but in this, the amendment passed that Jason Sane had proposed, and then all of a sudden the internet goes out at the General Assembly as far as like the Wi-Fi, like they can't get the people who are streaming into the meeting, because right now, if you want to stream into committee meetings, you can't. So the Wi-Fi goes out, we lose those who are, who are using their Wi-Fi to come on and participate in the committee, and then a conversation happens between Majority Leader John Bell and Representative Gail Adcock, and then we see a parliamentary procedure. Can you explain that? Sure. So then um, John Bell, again, the Majority Leader um, over on the House side, makes a motion to reconsider. Do you want to? Yeah. So um, apparently he and Gail Adcock, this kind of while they're waiting to get people through the WebEx, that's the platform they use. They're trying to get WebEx fixed. John Bell, Majority Leader, has a conversation with Gail Adcock, and they talk about what her grievance was with uh, the Sane Amendment and what she was trying to do. She was also trying to amend the bill. And all of a sudden, John Bell makes a motion. He says, Mr. Chair, when they come back to the meeting, 
having voted on the prevailing side, I would like to make a motion to reconsider the Gale Adcock Amendment. All of a sudden, everyone agrees we're going to reconsider the Gale Adcock Amendment, and then the Gale Adcock Amendment passes. And Jason Sane even said it. They, he said it in the committee meeting. We listened to what she had to say during this kind of blackout period, and her argument won. Kind of an interesting moment there at the General Assembly from a lobbyist perspective. You don't see that a lot. Right. It was interesting, and I actually think it was a real testament to John Bell, like who he is. Um, Representative Adcock actually had a conversation with us where she said he just asked her, what were you trying to do here? And when she explained it to him, he then agreed with her, and that was a nice moment of bipartisanship. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, as lobbyists, when we're down there, we see these kind of human moments. When you're watching the news at night or you're reading the newspaper, you do see a lot of conflict. You see a lot of debate. You see the press conferences. But sometimes the arguments do win out, and the majority party says, hey, we may have made a mistake here. And then all of a sudden you see these motions to reconsider, which is a very odd kind of parliamentary procedure. You have to pretty much say, hey, we voted in the majority, but we were wrong. We would like to reconsider. Can you bring it back? Yeah. And what's really interesting is that moment happened in the House on Tuesday night. Uh, evening, the House Rules Committee, I don't think let out until like 6 p.m. And then just a couple, maybe an hour later is when the news started to break or the rumors were going around the General Assembly that the Senate was going to make a motion to reconsider the school reopening bill. And so originally, if you're a Roberts Rules person, you might think, oh, it sounds like you were on the prevailing side and uh, based on this last story, that is how you make that motion to reconsider. And we originally thought that too, but the Senate rules are different than the House rules in that um, a person that makes the motion just has to be a person on the majority side, um, which there is a difference there. For those of you following the reopening issue, there, there is this push by the Republican majority to reopen schools. The Democrats are siding with the governor. He wants to have the authority to reopen or to keep to keep. The schools. first time the bill went through the chambers, there were enough Democrats who voted with the Republicans to override the governor's veto in both the House and in the Senate. Yeah. So when it came to the governor's veto, uh, enough Democrats, one at least, Paul Lowe, uh, Senator Paul Lowe, sided with... Uh, sided with the governor. And we'll get to that in a minute. But since then, we have had a lot of action going on. The state school, the state uh, board of education has weighed in on this. They've told schools to reopen. Even Governor Cooper has said that he wants schools to reopen. So it doesn't look like we are going to need Senate Bill 37, the reopening bill, because it looks like the political kind of uh, momentum is going towards the Republicans and what they ultimately want to achieve. But however, I have heard, and I think the speaker spoke about this, that the House was looking at filing and passing local bills 
to ensure that schools would reopen. I think like 90 out of the 115 districts, districts or LEAs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, LEAs. Districts. LEAs um, are open, but there is that little bit that aren't. And you can do local bills up to 14 counties, but at one time, but you can string them together to get up to 50%, which is you, you could, essentially have the same result um so i think that's something that the house is still considering actually yeah yeah so let's talk about this there's a lot of discussion in the media you see it on social media which by the way is a bad place to get your news Uh, but you do see it on social media these democrats who voted with the republicans on the reopening bill are they stick with the governor on the veto. Why is it so important, do you think, if you're a Democrat out there, that you stick with the governor on the veto? What is the long game you're trying to play here? At the end of the day, it's your party. You want your party to stand together. I think a big moment in the 2018 and 2020 elections was that they, well, in 2018, they broke that super majority. And then in 2020, the Democrats really stood together and said, not one time was the governor overridden. And so it begs the question, once he is overridden a few times, does that weaken the argument that the Democrats are making to their constituencies that, you know, we are a unit and we are here to check the Republican majorities. Yeah. So, you know, you might turn your vote to support the governor on a bill, but maybe it's your bill next that someone. So I think they have this kind of rule. I don't, I don't know if it's a, it's not a formal rule, but I know the Democrats have this rule that you can vote however you want to. You can vote on guns. You can vote for the budget. You can vote for reopening schools, but whenever that veto comes back, you better stick with the governor if we are going to have any relevance whatsoever in the General Assembly. And I know that frustrates a lot of people, right? Like, how, why are you flipping your vote? But from what I can tell, that seems to be the reason. Yeah, there was a moment last year when Senator Don Davis voted with the Republican majority and when after that happened, I think he faced quite a backlash. There was like a website just aimed at taking him down. People were saying he was going to get primaried. So, I mean, the message is clear. Stand with us or we'll have your ass. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so these are kind of the things that we observe. Before we get too far into the podcast, and we are going to have lots of podcasts where we talk about these kind of quirks that we're seeing at the General Assembly that we want to share with you, whether you're a lobbyist or not a lobbyist, but you're interested in what happens at the General Assembly. We're also going to have some guests who are going to come on, talk about whether they are legislators or maybe they are other lobbyists. But I want to talk to you, Sky, because you are a lobbyist. You're a lobbyist here at New Frame, which produces this podcast. Um, you have been working here. You just celebrated four years here at, at New Frame. Tell us a little bit about you and where you come from. Uh, you mentioned uh, your parents are up in Illinois. They're listening to this podcast. <laughs> hello, hello Philip and Cindy. Probably not. Probably not. 
but tell us a little bit about you and your career, because here's the number one question I get when um, I'm with normal people, that's non-lobbyists, it is, how did you become a lobbyist? How, how does one, you know, fall into this career? Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself um, going back to being a little girl in Illinois. Yeah, I grew up in a very small farming community in southern Illinois, not Chicago. I'll underline that for folks. Um, and I went to school at the University of Illinois, um, go Illini. And I will note that I was an agriculture major there. Something that Brian likes to point out to folks that you don't have to have some specialized degree or undergrad um, to be a lobbyist. And then I moved out here in 2013 to come to law school at Carolina. I graduated law school, but I have always really centered myself in victim services. Um, in undergrad, I did some research on domestic violence in affluent communities in the North Shore of Chicago. Um, and really kind of started um, working with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault at that time. So that was in about 2010 or 2011. So I'm about 10 years into victim services at this point. And I came out here, I interned for the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and the attorney I was working for at the time, she was going to be out of town for a couple of days. And I think was kind of like, what should I do with her? And said, why don't you go with our lobbyists to the General Assembly and just see, see that side of things? And I did that and I was there my first day and I was like, I wanna be here, mm -hmm. not in the office. And so I interned with him the next summer and he really gave me a lot of leeway and let me do mostly domestic violence. Um, related issues and then I worked for a legislator after I graduated from law school I worked a little bit on the campaign side and then in um, as a legislative assistant for a few months and then came to new frame so uh, you're an attorney and and being an advocate for uh, survivors whether it's domestic violence or sexual assault uh, attorneys play a critical role in, in, in doing that really case-by-case -case work, I think, a lot of times, uh, representing uh, survivors in court, um, whether it is uh, uh, domestic violence or sexual assault. Talk to me or tell, tell our audience a little bit about how a lobbyist um, is also an advocate for uh, survivors but I kind of think of it in a more systematic way. So on the back end, you have the court system and um, usually things have happened that are very negative, but on the front end, you, you are doing work also as an attorney and a lobbyist. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about the difference? Sure, so I do actually do direct legal services to survivors, and so I have clients aside from that. I have a unique role here in that I work at New Frame and represent other clients as well, but I am the staff attorney at the Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And so I have um, relationships with my clients that I become very close to. And oftentimes I hear from survivors what the gaps in policy are, the gaps in the criminal justice system are, where they feel that they were let down. And I think that I really enjoy the broad strokes of policy work um, at the end of the day 
the random survivor that I don't know and they don't know me, um, maybe something I did helped change the course of either how they see the criminal justice system or the course of their life um, kept them safe in some way that they other, otherwise weren't. And that type of thing will get me out of bed for the rest of my life. So a, a good example, a, a practical example is uh, the last biennium, the last session, two years ago, um, you got a, a, a very important piece of legislation through the General Assembly uh, with Senator Danny Britt, Representative Chaz Beasley, and others um, that really closed some loopholes on the front end of what needed to happen in, sex, in sexual assault work, as opposed to uh, the important work you do on the other end, being an attorney and helping these survivors uh, make their case against those who perpetuate crime. But you did some work on the front end that really um, strengthened uh, sexual assault laws. Can you talk a, a, about that and what you did and the loopholes that you got closed? Yeah, there were a couple loopholes that we were focusing on, we being the Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And one of those was State v. Way, which was a case from 1979 that said once consent is given um, for intercourse, consent cannot be removed. Um, withdrawal of consent, if you will. And it created a buzz in the media, kind of here and there, every couple years, there would be a compelling story about um, two people who decided to have consensual sex and then there was an act that was taken um, and then it became non-consensual. And when that person went to the police, they said, sorry, we can't prosecute that case. Um, or the police did the report and they got a dismissal from the DA's office and it would cite State v. Way. Um, so that was a 40-year-old law that needed to be changed and the, the appetite was not there for it um, for many years. Um, the second loophole that was pretty gaping to us was an incapacitation loophole. And that was covered in a court of appeals case, State v. Haddock, in 2007. So we were about 13 years into that, um, where North Carolina Court of Appeals said the General Assembly needs to change this law. And the law said that in order to be incapacitated, some action had to be taken by another person. So, you know, someone drugged your food or something like that. Um, but if you consume the alcohol yourself or took the drugs yourself, you were incapacitated to your own behalf, um, it was not able to be prosecuted as a rape. And it just didn't make sense. And so we fixed that as well. So, you know, a lot really there to unpack. I went on a couple of visits with you to legislators Again, there are 170 members at the General Assembly, 120 in the House, 50 in the Senate. And contrary to what the public may think, there are not a lot of lawyers in the General Assembly. I think we always think that, oh, there are all these lawyers that work there. But I've been there. This is my third decade at the General Assembly. There used to be more. You would explain the uh you would explain withdrawal of, consent. withdrawal of consent in a way for legislators who especially the non-lawyers 
that I thought was just brilliant. And a lot of times, by the way, being a lobbyist, um, it's, it's not what you see on TV. It's not what you see on the West Wing or on some movie. A lot of times it, it, is, it is taking a very complex issue and boiling it down for a legislator to really wrap their mind around. And so can you talk to our audience a little bit about how you explained uh, the consent piece of, was it Senate Bill 199? Sure. So for consent, what I would say, and I only developed this over a couple of years. This did not happen right away. Um, there were years of lobbying involved on my part and before me, decades of folks who tried to get this changed. So I don't take any credit for that. Um, we just got to a place where people were um, more interested in it and they heard the stories of survivors. But I will note that when talking to someone about it where maybe it's uncomfortable for them to talk about sex, it's not uncomfortable for me because this is what I do, but it may be uncomfortable for someone else and I don't wanna make another person uncomfortable. So um, the way I would talk about it is if I invite you to my beach house for the weekend, you get there on Friday and you're a jerk, I ask you to leave. If you don't leave, you're trespassing. It's the same thing when applied to your body. And so that's really how I kind of framed it for folks. And then I think that that caught on a little bit better um, for some people who maybe aren't attorneys or are not familiar with what exactly our rape statutes say. Because it did, it did have, there was a challenge, right, for some legislators to really kind of understand this concept of, of revoking consent. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you don't just do victim services work. You you uh, are not only representing survivors at the General Assembly. You have a pretty, pretty big portfolio of clients that you're representing. This this past Tuesday, you and I were in a meeting with John Bell and a whole host of legislators talking about a bill we've been working on since before you even came on to New Frame. I mean, talk about some of the other clients just in broad strokes of who you represent, who we represent here at New Frame. Sure, um, we, we do represent the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the Coalition Against Sexual Assault, the North Carolina Victim Assistance Network, which is mostly homicide victims. Um, we also represent the firefighters, as Brian noted. Um, we do represent the Travel Industry Association. And one of those provisions in that COVID bill this year was a provision for the travel industry that is incredibly important to them right now in order to get PPP loans um, during this round of PPP funding, and that saves people's jobs. So we represent a broad swath. You want to jump in with yeah. other clients? Early childhood education, uh, we're representing them. We represent some kids uh, that, uh, because of their, their immigrant status, would like to go to college. So working with some public school bus drivers and support personnel, and we're also doing some work, Sky, with the uh, North Carolina Association of ABC Board Farm Worker Issues. Got this great little organization that is that is uh, doing some innovative work in poor communities. Uh, they're called Beta Box, in which they're doing science and technology. STEM work. Yeah, yeah, STEM work. They're doing robotics, yeah, doing some juvenile justice work with Eckerd Connects. Um, and and then we are also working on some public safety issues. Uh, really, it's all over the map, Sky. I mean, for 
for us to come to work every single day, every day is different, right? Yeah, I often get this question on panels or whatever where they say like, describe an average day in your job. And I know it's so cliche to say, every day there is something different but it is true especially when you represent such a broad swath of clients that you could be i could be talking about sexual assault and then turn around and talk about firefighters and um it's just it just depends on who you're talking to what maybe someone comes up to you with a question about and it it makes it really fun and engaging and really keeps you on your toes i'm a planner i'm a type a type of person and so i like to plan and it challenges me to always be able to pivot when um, the time comes. So we are getting towards the end of our show here. Uh, before we go, let's give a preview of uh, what we can expect next week at the General Assembly. What are the things that you are looking for to happen at the General Assembly next week? So next week, they're going to ramp up the appropriations process. The COVID bill is in our rear view. So I expect that all of those appropriations subcommittees, so that's health and human services, education, general government, um, justice and public safety, those committees are going to zoom in and focus on their committees. We're past COVID, not past COVID, but past the COVID bill um, of this week. So we're going to look at what needs to change in our state budget. So I expect state budget talks to ramp up um, and I expect more bills to begin to move. What do you think? So we'll be in committee at 8.30 every day, Tuesday through Thursday. I think we're going to see the reopening debate come mm -hmm. back. I think, as you pointed out, some of the local bills that we're seeing are going to start to make some movement. We're going to see some controversial bills. I saw a, a, an immigration bill that came onto the calendar. A couple uh, gun bills I think are going to be heard. couple gun bills. Those are always fun to watch, uh, especially when you're not working on them. They are <laughs> fun to watch. Uh, we call that hashtag not my problem. Not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we sit through hundreds of bills every week and you and, and sometimes you just have to put down your computer and watch the theatrics. Yeah. So with that, uh, we are going to come back next week with a new podcast. We're hoping to get some guests on here, including some legislators who will talk about uh, the importance of lobbyists to them. We're also going to talk about uh, some what happened, what actually happened this week. If you have questions that you would like to see us address uh, on this podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at Brian with an I at new hyphen frame.com. Sky, give them your address. Mine is sky at new hyphen frame.com. And I recommend emailing me because Brian is not the best at reading his emails. But you can text me 919-413-2580. We hope everyone has a great week. If you want to sit through committees, come down to the General Assembly. We'll be there at 830. Bring something for us to eat because we could always use a snack. And remember to do politics better. Have a great week, everyone.